So um, what uh, what we're going to do is we have we're we're here where uh, the podcast version of Ways of Hearing was recorded here in the podcast garage. At least the track part of it. Of course, there are a lot of off uh, location sounds and found sounds and uh, etc. But my script was recorded here in the back. Uh, so we're on the site of the podcast. But uh, we have this great opportunity tonight, which is uh, to, to introduce to you the people who made both the podcast and the book. So we have Julie Shapiro from Radiotopia. And Julie, why don't you sit down? Yeah. And Ian Koss, who's the sound designer for the podcast. And where, where are my book people? Oh, here you are. Okay, and Matt Brown, who's the editor of the book version from MIT. And James Goggin, who is the graphic designer. So this is very neatly arranged, right? Because these are parallel roles, audio and uh, text. Um, Julie and Matt both perform the same role as editor uh, and producer of of uh, their respective versions of this project and Ian and James, sound designer and graphic designer, had uh, really identically analogous roles to one another, uh, as we'll discuss. So what I wanted to um, do here was, we're also, of course, recording this, how could we not, to make a podcast about a podcast about a book, (laughs) about a podcast about a book, just keep going. But uh, the way I'm thinking of tonight is this is like the making of, you know, those documentaries that they make for films where, you know, there's a film being made, but then they're also carrying cameras around and asking people questions uh, off the camera that you're going to see later and cut together in the film, but they're, they're still filming. And so this is like making of a podcast and of a book because we have the creators here. And I wanted to take this opportunity to discuss with them the way that we made this project and also the relationship between the audio and the book, which is a curious thing to have done, but very deliberate and I think very interesting uh, for all of us to look at. So to start, I thought what we would do is um, I'll play the very beginning of the first episode of the podcast, which is what you're looking at here. So the book is the script, literally the script. I did not change a word. Easiest, quickest... (laughs) book possible quickie Um, but it turned out to be an enormous amount of labor just like just like a podcast was as well yes yes easiest was not the easiest book to put together because of course uh, just printing a script wouldn't communicate so we had to find ways to make it work as a book and that's this team here we'll discuss. But to give you an idea of how this, this goes and how it relates to the audio, I thought I'd play the beginning of the podcast and page through the very beginning of the book. So this will you can listen and read. Uh, this is the cover of the book, which is also the first page of the script. And here we go. The first record I made was all analog. It wasn't a choice. That's just how it was done in the 80s. My friends and I lived in an all-analog world. There were no computers in our lives. That didn't feel weird. It would have been weird if there had been. At the time, computers were something you saw on TV during a moonshot. You saw people sitting at computers at NASA Mission Control. Making a record wasn't anything like a moonshot. It didn't use numbers. It didn't use data. Not that there was no technology involved. The tape decks, mixing board, microphones, they all seemed very magical. But they were made of magnets, gears, motors, electricity, like all the mechanical objects in our lives then. And so my bandmates and I set up our instruments in the studio. We counted off and we played our songs. In many ways, it's simply nostalgia to think that it was so different. People are people, sounds are sounds, and our technology is always changing. Still, there's something particular about that analog experience which seems hard to conjure back up in the digital present. 
And for that very reason, it feels important to try. In that analog studio, there was a feeling when the tape started rolling that this was the moment we would capture. A feeling of time moving both more slowly and more quickly than usual. Like when you're in an accident. Each split second is suddenly so palpable as if you're living in slow motion. Yet what do we say when it's over? It all happened in an instant. Analog recording is like an accident in other ways. On tape, there was no undo. You could try again if you had the time and money. But you couldn't move backwards. What's done is done, for better and worse. Today, life as a musician is very different. In the digital studio, and I'm using one now, everything you do is provisional. That is, it can be redone, reshaped, rebuilt. There's no commitment, because each element of a recording can be endlessly changed. It can even be conjured from digital scratch, as it were, and entered into a computer directly as data, without anyone performing at all. This means there's no moment from lived experience that is captured forever and unalterably so, in the digital studio. Which is why it's more than nostalgia that makes me remember the analog studio as different than what we know today. Because the digital era has not just altered our tools for working with sound, or image, or moving images, it is changing our relationship to time itself. This is Ways of Hearing, a six-part podcast from Radiotopia's Showcase, exploring the nature of listening in our digital world. I'm Damon Krukevsky, a musician and a writer. In each episode, we'll look at a different way that the switch from analog to digital audio is changing our perceptions of time, of space, of love, money, and power. This is about sound, the medium we're sharing together now. But I'm worried about the quality of that sharing, because we don't seem to be listening to each other very well right now in the world. Our voices carry further than they ever did before, thanks to digital media. But how are they being heard? So that's the intro <clears throat> to both the book and the podcast. It's really fun to hear it again. And um, I, I thought, uh, you know, looking back at the very beginning of this and how the project started and where I started with the script and Ian started with the sound and we all started together on this, I noticed more than ever how much um, attention is called to the material that we're working in. There are these sort of meta remarks in there about the digital studio, I'm using one now, about um, the medium we're sharing together now in that intro text, which was then repeated in all the episodes. And I, part of the project was to um, call more attention to the material itself. Because we, you know, we put these earbuds in and we wander all around town and we have our sound in our car. And I think there's a lot of, you know, there's always a temptation with audio to just let it wash over you and go with the flow. It's part of the pleasure that we all derive from music and sound altogether, I think. Um, but then when we're using it to convey ideas, I think there's a, there's a, another aspect that felt important to me that can be lost sometimes in this ease of digital communication that we have right now and through gadgetry, which is just thinking about the medium itself, calling attention to it. And um, musicians and people who work with sound um, tend to be hyper aware of these things, but even we can let it go, you know, sometimes, sometimes you want to let it go, you know, like I chose a new record I'd 
downloaded to play for you all while we were mingling around, you know, just for pleasure. Um, but then when you, when you want to really, you know, think about what is this format of communication doing, how, how are we using it, where, what's it doing to us as well, uh, I felt like I needed to really throw that into relief. So the project is really a lot about uh, material and the medium, and which is also why when it came to make it, uh, I wanted to make it a book from the very beginning, uh, the decision was made to leave it as a script, to call attention to its relationship to another format to audio. So the very first thing you see is a cue for a sound effect right there, SFX. And in the back of the book, Ian has provided us with a podcasting glossary uh, to explain terminology like that. Because I also thought this could be a sort of a how-to um, reveal for people interested in podcasting, uh, show you how a script is made and how it translates into sound, since the sound is available. So with my four collaborators here on stage, I, I thought you know we could discuss that a little bit, because it also struck me that, I mean, the project as a whole is also discussing the translation of analog to digital sound and then back again. But really, we were dealing with translation from format to format from the very beginning. So if I could take Julie, you, back to the very beginning of the project, uh, where I came to you and I pitched you a podcast. <laughs> I think I was confident, but the truth is I knew, did not know what I was doing at all. <laughs> And I was like, Damon from Galaxy 500. <laughs> um, small fun fact is the Tugboat Captain, which happened to be in this episode, was a beloved song of mine. And I moved with my family to Australia for a couple of years. And we took like 10 CDs with us, because who travels with CDs anymore? But I took, <laughs> I took Galaxy 500, and I listened to that song a lot while I was there. So it was it's funny to come back and get this job with Radiotopia. And... Like uh, soon, Damon approaches and says, let's do a podcast. And I thought, there's something in the universe telling me to do this. But actually, what we were doing was we were starting a new show called Showcase, which is a podcast from Radiotopia, which features um, limited series, one after another, each very different from the next. And this came along right when we were starting up the podcast. And I thought, what a better way to launch this new show then with a show about listening and about the changing of listening and about the culture of listening and how we listen. Um, and I love that we're talking about material because, you know, something I've said a billion times into a microphone is like, well, audio really is the most visual medium. Ha, ha, ha. And like, it's, it, you know, it, but like, here we are. It's actually very visual. And I love the thought that yeah. like this content can just shape shift and take all mm -hmm. these forms and be as relevant and offer mm -hmm. something else in each form. I mean, I think that listening is its own unique experience. And I think reading the book which I can't wait to do, will be its own experience. And I have to say, being in a room with book people just makes me so happy because I'm around a lot of podcast folk. And I just think like our mediums are, you know, there's something where simpatico and a lot of the people who are diehard podcast fans are also readers and like really care about book culture. So um, I love this meeting of the minds, meeting of the ears and the brains. And, you know, I think like this was a perfect project for us to launch Showcase with, but also to stand for what Radiotopia cares about. Um, if you don't know, we're a network of independent shows that we help kind of make their way into the world. And we're often compared to an independent music label. So like, again, these like parallels of the independent music scene and the, and the podcast scene and this project coming in like really tied a few things together for me. So Yeah, and then also, Julia, it struck me how what I came to you with first was not sound. I came to you with, with words. A lot of words, yeah. Right, with a script, <laughs> yeah. I mean, with due, lots yeah. of respect. And, um, no, no, it's true. And, and, um, and then what we did together uh, working on the script was very intense editing. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you literally edited my writing. And that to the to this text, it had to it had to change, right? Because people are listening to this, and also you came and said, "Let's illustrate all of these ideas through sound." And that's where I got really that was irresistible to me. Like, how do we take these ideas but show people through sound? And again, that visual element of sound came through. Like, even illustrate is a visual world, right? Mm -hmm. Word, right? And that's where Ian stepped in to, to help us do that. But like the 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 book on its own wasn't enough. But it was saying like, how do we? show this, demonstrate, prove the point, talk the talk, walk the walk, you know, mm -hmm. through the sound of what it will sound like. Mm -hmm. That's where, like, it got very exciting. To yeah, me. but I also felt like I learned a different type of writing yeah. from from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And because, so I, so the way the project first started was I had written a more discursive nonfiction book called The New Analog. And I brought that to Julie and I said, this is about sound. It actually started, this is the anecdote, which is that Audible, which is owned by Amazon, right, um, bought the audio rights to my previous book, The New Analog. And I was like, oh, that's exciting. Like I could, you know, add all this sound and, and all this stuff. And Audible said, no. <laughs> because that that ruins their profit margin. They need to just have these texts like churned out. Mm -hmm. They don't want to spend any time adding anything in. So they wouldn't let me alter it. And um, at the end of that experience, I, I did record an audiobook version of my first book. And I was so um, disappointed and I just felt like a very empty exercise because mm -hmm. that was not making an audiobook. Yeah. I mean, it's an audiobook in what's called an audiobook commercially. But it was not an audio experience. It's just literally reading aloud, mm -hmm. which yeah. is not an audio yeah. thing. So, uh, so I came to Julie, and I was like, this was a terrible experience. You know, let's do something really good um, with sound and my book. So that's where we started. But then the thing that was quickly clear was my book was useless as an audio <laughs> script. Not useless. Well, the ideas, were, the ideas were yeah. okay. Yeah. And but I think you even told us that we couldn't use too much of the text of the book. That's right, for contractual reasons. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Constraints right. are very liberating, actually, yes. right? Yeah, Aud Audible would not allow a second audio product <laughs> that used, I think it was like more than 15% of this, the language, something right. yeah. like that. Right. And uh, it's still a yes, it's a big loophole. Yeah, we've driven, <laughs> we've driven a truck through. That's why so, this one's so much shorter. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Only fifteen percent. They didn't say I could. Use, I got fifteen percent of a text. But then what? What was quickly clear was um, that I didn't know how to write for for audio, which was so funny because I come out of music and I was like, yeah, I can do this. You know, yeah, I know how to make a record. Uh, I know how to write a song. I know how to write a book because I'd written a book. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know how to write a podcast. But you learned really quickly. <laughs> Thank you. It's very generous of you. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. It is different. It is different. And it, you know, podcasting is so personal and it's so intimate. And we think like we're best friends with the person we're listening to. And we needed to bring that in. So it was like a little bit less. Um, I say it's a thinky podcast because I think it, there are a lot of thoughts and philosophy and big ideas that become very tangible and accessible. But like we had to bring that through you you know we couldn't do mm -hmm. without you but we had to sort of change that a little bit to reach out to people thinking you know who are coming to podcasting not necessarily familiar with the ground you're covering but mm -hmm. curious about how we're going to make it sound very much i mean i think the reaching out was something i took away from it i really had to find a more generous stance yeah. myself in expressing my ideas in a in a in a different manner I, yeah. more emotional mm -hmm. more anecdotal more personal you brought yeah. your mom in. I brought my mom in. And that's like one in. of you know, the most I, beautiful, yeah. most memorable things in the whole series. And we had to, we had to push series. you to bring oh, your I mom resisted. in. I resisted. Yeah. I resisted. I was like, oh, my God, no, no, no. Yeah. It's a cliche. I can't do it. I can't, yeah. I can't like, call my mom. But I was, I was, I was convinced. And, and in the end, I mean, I wasn't convinced. I did it. <laughs> but in the end, it's so oh, good. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. I make mean, my mom yeah. so happy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is really what we're here for, Damon. Yes, but still talk. Talking and singing oh, yeah, are two different things. She was very nervous about talking. The anecdote I can tell you about that is behind the scenes, the making of story is, um, you know, I arranged with my mom. I was like, okay, my producers have said I have to call my mother. You know? <laughs> I, I think the phrase that it was used was, it's, it's radio gold. <laughs> <laughs> so I call yeah. my mom and I'm like, mom, you know, would you do this? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So when should we do this? And I was like, well well, let's talk about it a bit and then we'll set up a time. She's like, okay. And I turned the tape on. <laughs> <laughs> and then we talked for a long time. Yeah. And at the end of it, you know, we had this really great conversation. And then at the end of it, my mom was like, I, I was like, mom, you know what? I actually just taped it. And she said, I was hoping you'd say Aww. that. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no way that she could prepare yeah. and yeah. do it as naturally and yeah. she knew that so it was a mutual deception <laughs> <laughs> classic you know parent child kind yes. of like, you know, yes. we both were pretending we didn't know but we both knew that the other yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway it worked but but yeah i feel like it really did um alter my understanding of what i could communicate through prose and in a way closer to song yeah but not impressionistic like song because the words in the podcast, at least in our podcast, 
which is very much an essay version of a podcast, still had to make total, complete sense. sense yeah. And I don't put that demand on my songwriting at all, for but, those of you who've ever listened to my music. Well, no, I do love what you're saying about communication. And I think music does convey information and emotion at the same time. Mm. And a lot of times podcasting can mimic that form and and grasp for that. Not always in the same way, but but the good ones actually get there. When you think about the stories you've listened to that have really like struck you in a way, like they're musical, right? They may not be about music, but they're musical and there's something in the elements and how it comes together in the craft that is stronger than just each of those things separately. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, it's very emotional. It's an emotional medium. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. Ian, Ian, that was something you said to me very early on, coaching me, that it's an emotional medium. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you don't think of a nonfiction book as an emotional medium necessarily. Maybe a memoir, but not, not an essay Mm-hmm. book of essay about the switch from analog to digital sound. That is not, it doesn't sound emotional, but actually there was a lot of personal emotion involved in right. that topic for me. And so it was sort of like to draw that out. How do you do that? And we did it through sound. I mean, first through editing and through Julie, really Julie went word by word over the script with me mm-hmm. and really shaped it in minute detail. Cause this is the other thing about podcasting and audio. If you're going to do it the way we did it, which is every second counts. And not even every second, every split second counts. Mm-hmm. You're talking about very small gestures. That section we just heard together, you heard these very quick things that Ian did in the sound to, to shift your attention or to call something out more for you or um, to color it. Those are really minute moves. I mean, if you put them up on a, on a screen, Ian's mixing screen is filled with tiny, tiny little detail. And... Oh, yeah, there is a picture of that in the book. That's right. There is. I forget what page, but there is. Stop me when you see it. And um, there it is. There it is. That's, that's actually Ian's screen from the very moment that this page represents. Because yes, yes, I remember this one. Yeah, so James... I had to dig through a hard drive. Yeah, as a design... James... James was like, no, we don't want just any yeah, illustrative screen. The, we want the, the very moment, which again <laughs> is that moment. calling attention to the material and to the, the meta commentary yeah, going yeah. on. But, you know, to me, what Ian, I want to address to you is, you know, so we, we, we worked on this script, pared it down, and we kept refining it as we went along with sound as well. But Ian, you, know, you stepped in. Yeah. And again, I just feel like, you know, what, how you, what you, how you, brought so much life to the script. It was a miracle to me. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about your approach to it, the materials yeah, sure. you used and how you put it together. So the, the first thing that comes to mind is actually just before this event, this afternoon at the garage, I was teaching a workshop on sound design for some podcast teams coming from uh, actually different countries for a, a program here. And one of the things I was saying to them and something I say when I talk about sound design in general is, Really, I see the the f- first and foremost. Did I lose my mic. No, okay. First and foremost, I see my job as doing really similar work to what the punctuation and layout does on mm. the page. So I really, I I do think of my work in that way. You know, when you consume text, the as a reader, you dictate the rate at which you absorb that material. You can stop and start, you can go back, you can read quickly, you can read slowly. You're taking cues from paragraph breaks, line breaks, semicolons, commas. You don't get any of that in an audio medium. So I see my first role as providing that punctuation of regulating the rate at which you process information. Um, And so on a really practical level, in that little clip we heard at the beginning, as much as the sound is adding uh, you know, context, uh, information, flavor, tone, emotion, a lot of what it's doing is actually just creating space um, so that we're getting your information, we're hearing your story in a way that we can process in real time, in a way that we can divide it up into coherent thoughts, because we're not getting those cues otherwise. You know, we're not getting the paragraph breaks. So I think especially in this kind of project that is, you know, a good chunk of it was essayistic in the sense that it was um, written out, 
read as one voice. You know, it's it's not, you know, for good chunks of the podcast, we're not hearing interviews. We're not hearing field recordings. We're just hearing, we're kind of inside Damon's head. I think especially in that kind of production, a lot of what the sound design is doing is that sort of regulation of the audience's attention. But then within that, of course, you could you could just put any kind of filler sound in there to um, to break things up. But in our case, we had this, as Julie said, a really kind of special opportunity because the subject matter itself is sound um, to sort of build into that punctuation. Also, this kind of running parallel illustration or um, kind of accompaniment to the words themselves. Uh, there are you know, all these little opportunities to illustrate. Um, and I remember as I, it, Damon, you gave me the original book, um, um, the new analog that we were sort of coming to as a rough sort of starting point for creating this podcast. And that book was actually very visual. You'd, it was filled with photographs and illustrations. Um, and I remember talking about it with you. And, and I think in that version, there were all these things that you could illustrate so well visually, like what a phonograph looks like, maybe, or, you know, what, you know, a streetscape, you know, what, what that looks like. But parallel to that, there were all these things that you really couldn't illustrate well like the passage of time <laughs> doesn't really Pause. exist on a page right. in the same way that it really exists in audio. Yeah. It's such a temporal medium. So when we got into episodes where we're thinking about time on a grid versus time lived in a moment and that, that kind of expands and contracts as a part of a, this sort of ongoing negotiation between musicians that's something you can really show mm -hmm. in sound um, in a way that you you actually can't on the page in the same way although I I think that this whole process speaks to the 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 value in in these kind of like crossovers of what shows well on the page and what shows well in sound and attempting to do both against the other um, so I think that's that's where I was coming from is that on the one hand, trying to package and deliver and shape your words in a way that really comes to the ear um, and flows into the mind, but at the same time, always be interacting with and commenting on those words. Yeah, it's, it, that's so well said. And the punctuation is amazing because even just listening to that first section and, and uh, while looking on the page, you do, my own sense of pacing is really radically different yeah. uh, from what we did in the podcast. And that's um, that's such a crucial aspect of of reading that you are free to do that. And right. so when you're when you're listening, you do surrender. You know, you're 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 pacing. You're there are all these choices that are made for you. By, Unless you hit the one point five times right, 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 right. speed button, which is that's actually right on this page. Yeah, <laughs> which again is another one of these meta moments I mentioned here about that. Uh, if you're listening to a podcast, you can just speed it up if you want, and then James compressed the type for the faster speed and then mm -hmm. right. spread it out for the slower speed just to give you that sense <laughs> on the page of, you know, there are multiple possibilities of yeah. how you present text as well. Uh, and then Ian, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about how you chose um, to accompany it. Cause we didn't use uh, scoring in a traditional manner, right? but you did, you did score it in a, in a way. In a way. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the feelings we had early on is that we wanted there wouldn't be any sound in the show that would just be there, you know, and just not reference anything. All the sound, we wanted it to sort of come organically from the world of the show and always be sort of feeding back into the content and the concept in the way we've been discussing. Um, so aside from the theme music, uh, Trickle Down, right, mm -hmm. by Robert Wyatt, um, which was such a lovely choice. And uh, every episode, I appreciated that, the moment when that music came in. Yeah. All the other music in the show um, sort of emerged out of the, the show and what we were talking about. So, for example, um, there was this, uh, we, I took some of the, the music from Tugboat, 
Um, that's this, the Galaxy 500 song we heard at the beginning. And at the end of it, there's this great big resounding chord and it's just beautiful and lush. Um, and I took that one chord and I stretched it out. So it, so what, you know, on the record, you know, rings for, you know, maybe a few seconds, suddenly has this long sustain, endless sustain. Um, and, and so it takes sounds like that and use it as a bed, you know, underneath. So as Damon's talking, if you hear sounds in the background, in fact, that was, we often use that sound for like moments of deep introspection because it had that sort of like space documentary suspended, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Nova-esque quality to yeah. it, I think. Um, but then in, in other episodes, we took more um, explicitly referential approaches so for example in episode two um in episode three we had um all these references to space um urban space in particular and then episode three we had all these uh we spent a lot of time talking about the telephone mm -hmm. and how our sense of intimacy emotion communication um is sort of influenced by technology so in those episodes we we were building up the kind of sound bed score of the show. It was a lot of like dial tones, filtered ringtones, um, filtered car horns, mm -hmm. cityscape sounds. Um, so there's a lot of manipulation that we did to take, um, yeah, like I said, the sort of materials all around us mm -hmm. in the process of making the show and turn it into a score that even if, I mean, I liked, it's the kind of thing that you may not know necessarily when you hear it, if it's, you know, because it's gone through a lot of processing, mm -hmm. but I like to think that it, it somehow resonates with the other sounds, voices, and, you know, ideas we're hearing because it is of that world as opposed mm -hmm. to something I just played on a piano. Yeah, I really appreciated that because I feel like what I loved about it was that Ian was using, you used, uh, sounds you give us the meaning of the sound the direct meaning of the sound right so like here's episode two i just pulled up and it starts with an elevator bing like bing you know the elevator but then that sound in calls back abstracted as the episode goes on and you may not even recognize it as the elevator sound anymore but you were given the key to it at the mm -hmm. beginning yeah. and so i feel like it's very analogous to what happens with an idea as you play with it in an essay and you stretch it and reshape it and come right. back from another perspective but you you you're holding on to where the the germ of the idea began and so i think you orally gave the audience that that toolbox right. even if it's not doesn't call attention to itself as a as a, such a a device so arch but it's there i deeply think people don't know their understanding but they get it <laughs> i mean i think it just builds the authenticity mm -hmm. of right. what you're listening to and you don't even know but you're deeper in right, it right. just it's just more authentic yeah it just and it, it's it's very musical also i mean ian's a musician as well so we had a great communication i think built also on that and there's a musical aspect to ian's uh work that you know i understood right away and i was very sympathetic with so it's the same way where you might start with one sound or one chord or something and you start to elaborate it through a song. And even if people don't necessarily, you don't have to point to say, I did this. It just makes sense. Mm -hmm. The other great thing it did structurally, which I think is, is um, I want to mention since we're in this making of mode, is <clears throat> Ian made each episode have a distinct sound mm -hmm. because he, he erased that palette at the end of each episode and started again. So each of the keys at the beginning, um, each of the episodes begins with a particular found sound of one kind or another. Uh, episode three, this is where I call my mom, begins with that FaceTime ringtone. We all know what that sounds mm -hmm. like yeah. at this moment in technological history. They won't soon. <laughs> uh, but they can go back to the podcast and figure out from context. Um, and again, it's that ringing, you know, and then the episode dives in from there. Right. And so... I really, th I thought that was great structurally to how I wanted this to progress. It's not a podcast where you get to episode 355, you know. This is going to be, always going to be limited. That was Julie's idea for Showcase as well and my idea for this bounded essay investigation. So to give each chapter real distinction was important structurally um, mm -hmm. to me and I think really 
helps and works yeah. in the episode. Although in six, it all kind of comes roaring. Back. Right then, at the very end, yeah. and if you're if when you go to the end of the end of the podcast or the book, there's a kind of a wrap up, and then Ian calls back the sounds from the previous episodes. And so, if you go to the very end, you can hear him cycling through these little mini sets of sounds that he created for each one in episode one. We talked about this, and Ian you pulls the sound from there. In episode two, we did this, and it pulls out that way. So uh, let's uh, let's turn to the book, and I have my literary collaborators here. But here's the here's the paradox of this. So Matt Brown is editor at MIT, based in London, and uh, for one thing, Matt understood immediately. Both of you did. This is how I came to both of you. Really, the relationship between this project and a book called Ways of Seeing, which started as a BBC television series uh, by the art historian. John Berger. And I think partly because you both grew up, because in the US it's not as well known a, a text mm-hmm. as it is in the in the UK and in the Commonwealth. And you both knew that text very, very well. And I think right away, Matt, you saw where I was going with this as a project. But here's the paradox. So Matt is an editor, a professional editor, but I came to him with a completely finished <laughs> text. Yeah. It's a dream. Thank you very much. Right? <laughs> So we did zero. We did zero (laughs) editing, right? Not only finished text, but I couldn't touch it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, no. (laughs) MIT very professionally, dutifully had a copy editor to go over it. Sent me back a copy editor. It was useless because I was using my audio as the ultimate. Um, yeah. uh, authority yeah. of what was going in and what was going out. So the copywriter was like, you can't say this in a sentence. I was like, too late. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Yeah. I already said it. I already said it. Yeah. I said it. Can't do it, yeah. you know? And uh, I didn't, you, you, you were reading along in that first part I showed you, you saw it was word for word, right? Um, so, so Matt, though, made a book out of this. And that is, of course, what an editor really does. And so that's kind of what I wanted you know, to approach you with was yeah. about the translation that you had to undertake. I mean, how did we came to, I came to you again with a sort of a, a weird project, straight script, but how do we make a book out of well, it? Well, straight script, um, but also the podcast mm-hmm. ready for me to listen to and uh, the Berger book. Right. And so all of those things, you kind of, we could have had those in front of us. Um, and so I felt very lucky in that sense, and it was kind of a fun conversation to have. And we were, all, you know, we were being playful from the beginning because um, before we had the kind of uh, reality of okay, how do we actually physically make this happen and um, think about the design possibilities and um, and decisions we'd have to make in order to get to uh, what we have now. And um, I mean, I remember very clearly uh, that meeting we had at the MIT press office, and we had all of those not just the John Berger book, um, but all of those other array of the Chris Marker books, which mm-hmm. I thought uh, were you know great touchstones, especially thinking of the two-color treatment. Mm-hmm. And it was lovely to see um, that in front of us. So I, I did feel kind of very fortunate in the sense that often as an editor, like the, the, the big pleasure is to see finally the book that you've been working on in print. And it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's and this is very much testament to the, any kind of book that there's so many people that work on it. You're kind of uh, you shepherd it through, but there's so many fingerprints on it. So it's so, um, it, it's very satisfying when it's finally in print. But what often you don't get is the visualization, more or less, of what roughly it will be mm. um, at such an early stage. And um, so I think, at, you know, that stage of the project, it was perhaps sort of most exciting, but also the most abstract because we had these um, sort of foundational texts, you know, as we just as we said earlier, a physical mood board to go off. And then it was kind of um, the next stage was sort of thinking more about, you know, how do we go about making design decisions? And the editorial process, again, like you said, it was kind of a challenge to deal with something that you could not touch, yeah. but at the same time had to uh, sort of force into something which made sense to the readers. Um, because we got it, but would it work? And that was something which needed uh, a great designer to come on board and, yeah. and understand from the off you know, what we were looking for. So. Right, well, because I, I feel like what we did together right away was think of the book as an object, as right. a whole. Yeah. And 
because the, the text was, was fixed. So it was almost like we weren't distracted by all those questions that you would normally have with an edit, a book editor of, you know, well, you know, does the intro, is this really, you know, is this the right introduction? Or maybe you should rearrange the chapters or, mm -hmm. you know, have you thought about adding a, another section? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. like, this is really unclear. Although, we do, although the crucial aspect of this, yeah. I think, um, in, in those early stages was this idea of having the, the preface stroke interlude. Right, um, right. And I think that was uh, you know, the one thing that was not um, present in the in the podcast was that right. uh, sort of writerly moment, which was playfully turned into um, a scripted moment in the style of the podcast script. Wait, which that's right. What so, is this, Damon? So, <laughs> so what we did was... We, so, we snuck bon something in. Bon bonus episode, yeah. anyone? <laughs> oh, wait, I'm going the wrong direction in the, in the PDF, sorry. Let me get back to the beginning of the book, and now I'm, uh, since we are recording this for audio, I will describe that I'm paging through a PDF of the book. Mm. For everyone to see, page twenty-one. So, so, the, so here's, but here's what's amazing about Matt's approach and MIT Press really as a tradition. I mean, because I feel like MIT has a history of allowing uh, people to play with the book form mm. and to use the book in its fully com communicative capacity, and not just pretend again that. Uh, it's really just words that just get beamed into your eyeballs. But no, you actually confront a physical object that has a cover, that has a spine that bends in a certain way, that has paper that feels a certain way, looks a different. It gives you all these feelings about the text that you're receiving. And something I've always loved about MIT, and I, I grew up with MIT press books with my dad, had a lot of them in the house. These, uh, you know, the incredible logo by Muriel Cooper, right? Abstract logo. And, and you know, they represented to me a kind of a, a modernist idea or ideal of the book as an object, really. Um, so we started thinking about that way from the very beginning, and MIT allowed such radically odd things to do. For example, as so James has put the text beginning on the very cover, partly as a gesture to John Berger's book and his designer, whose name I... I Richard Hollis. Richard Hollis. Yeah graphic designer of the original Ways of Seeing book, which also begins right on the cover. But as uh, James said, what was always seemed a little disappointing about the Ways of Seeing was then you turn the page and it was a normal inside front cover and then you get a title page and then you get uh, the copyright page and, mm. and then you get back to the flow of the book. And James was like, no, I, wanted to, I always wanted to turn the cover and just see the next page. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt allowed us to put text on the inside cover, right? So page two, page one is the cover and page two is the inside cover. Now you've got a problem because where does the title page go? And where's the table of contents yeah. and the contents? I mean, I'd like to say that I allowed it as if I'm the, I'm the gatekeeper to all of those decisions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe you did shepherd it through I, the press. I said, let me see what I can do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is basically my job. <laughs> let me see what I can do. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it, and it happened. Look, so then you keep going. And so this part that I just played for you to start this, you notice when we got to the end of the intro, there we are, where we stopped hearing. And then it's the next page is the table of contents. So you don't get the table of contents until you've gotten through that whole intro section which seems perfectly analogous to the podcast, right? Because you, you, you don't turn on a podcast unless it's WTF with Mark Maron and get a long preamble. <laughs> <laughs> He's an amazing interviewer. But that, you know, but, but that long, 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 long preamble. Normally, you know, with audio, you dive in. Most songs start right away. They don't have a little like hemming and hawing in the beginning where it's like, mm -hmm. You know, nice to meet you. I am I am John Lennon, and this I'm going to play you my song. Just one, two, three, four. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But books books do have all this framing, right? And it's beautiful, dramatic aspects to books that we didn't want to eliminate, but we did want to play with. Which also, I think, relates to the meta aspect of the project altogether, because it's calling your attention to these formal aspects of the book. Oh look, the table of contents doesn't come till later, and then the copyright page comes there on the back of the table of contents, <laughs> and then this is this is what Matt was raising. Where do you put the introduction? You now we we we, have, we wanted a preface, and Matt thought uh, which was a wonderful idea that it would really help to frame the work and frame this with a preface. 
but a preface literally comes first mm-hmm. and it's too late. It's kind of like the script, like with the copy editor, it's like too late, can't do. So what do we do with the preface? Well, we put it after the first chapter. So, and renamed it interlude because of course it's an interruption. It's not the preface. And Matt, maybe you should talk about how this came to be mm. with Emily Thompson, the wonderful uh, historian of technology. Who mm. wrote and this. well, Emily, I mean, is, is part of the podcast. Uh, which episode yeah, is true. Emily? Two, Emily, two, em- uh, number two. Number two, which is, mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, talk Radio about ser- serendipity with the whole, th- I mean, I'll go back to that. But, um, you know, Emily was very happy to, to, to do something, but she also didn't quite know what she was writing a preface for because the whole point of, I mean, or the interlude, uh, and the whole point of this was to kind of take a step back and not just talk about the the podcast, but also to talk about the book too. But how do you do that unless you see it, especially with this book? Right. Because, you know, the the script is already there. So that was, I suppose, the the challenge of... uh, Giving, taking a few steps back a few weeks earlier, giving James a certain deadline to deliver some kind of proof of concept, concept to Emily. Mm. Me explaining to Emily, you know, and you explaining to Emily too what we're hoping this will be. And then Emily kind of quite rightly saying, oh, let me just see it before I write anything. <laughs> yes, so, yes. so James working very, very quickly, uh, us all kind of all hands to the pump, um, our production team giving us a schedule which was uh, ambitious um, but necessary. And and then you, you just have to hope that um, what you get kind of makes sense and everyone's happy with it because right. we were on, we, we, you know, we had a very, a very tight sort of schedule to, to, to meet. And um, there were so many, there were so many instances where I thought, you know, if this doesn't come off in the way that we hope it does, then we might have to be sort of pegged back a little bit and you know rethink how to how to approach this. But Emily just delivered the most wonderful interlude, um, yeah. such uh, sort of a um, kind of beautifully sensitive to your uh, tone of voice in the podcast, but also on the page, and also um, the playfulness uh, in you know in the book itself, because it was Emily's idea to have this uh, SFX and radio announcer um, uh, intro to the actual interlude, mm-hmm. which, I mean, just shows you that, you know, when you start sort of lining, when things go go your way, you tend to, you know, the things, the, the, the dominoes begin to fall nicely. And yeah. um, James can probably explain that uh, because of the schedule being so tight, he had to lay out the book pretty more or less um, by the time Emily started working on this interlude. Yeah. And so if Emily's interlude was any shorter or longer than he had laid out and made a plan for, <laughs> then I'm sure he would have turned the air blue with frustration. But um, given us how things were going so swell, mm-hmm. it, 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 it fit exactly. It fit exactly. <laughs> it fit absolutely. We had six pages. And we had a 136-page book. Yeah. No room, and anytime Damon would email or call with maybe one suggestion, this was such a jigsaw puzzle to get each image <laughs> fitting with the text. Any slight tweak yeah. was a, a wrong kind of domino. A line, a line break, <laughs> a line break yeah. would have yeah. caused issues. So, yeah. but um, Emily, Emily was fantastic. It's amazing. So she she wanted to see the entire book before she could comment on it, which meant the galleys went out with just black pages for the introduction, (laughs) where I think you put Laura Mipsum. No, I don't even like Laura Mipsum, so I I just left it blank. It's black, (laughs) and um, it was just missing, so we just had to do it this way. Hmm. But Emily Thompson has worked in sound, that's where she started actually, and um, when she finally saw it, and she already knew the podcast, and then when she saw what James was doing and how the book was going to be structured, she responded in kind yeah. and came back to us and shocked us with a sound effect instruction to begin her her, yeah. her piece. Uh, so this is the only sound now that you do not hear in the podcast that's instructed. At least and not yet. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, Can it's, you do radio static? It's purely, it's, it's purely for your imagination. But then actually what she... The point she makes in this piece is that you hear sound when you read, mm-hmm. which gets back to what Ian was saying also about um, the relationship between the two. And Julie, actually, all of you have mentioned this. Mm-hmm. That So Emily makes the point that when you hear the podcast, 
you hear the sounds that we're prepared for you to hear. That's the whole nature of what it is to have an audio production. But when you read, you supply the sounds yourself. Mm. And so you're going to hear different sounds reading this book, Ways of Hearing, than you are going to hear listening to Ways of Hearing. Mm. And what she says is that they are not, one is not superior to the other. They are two distinct experiences, and you're going to gain different aspects mm -hmm. from both. We always talk about listening as though like you're pulling the visuals yourself. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's so mm -hmm. compatible. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's so like the reverse yeah. version of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's exactly that's it. And then, of course, uh, James, we should maybe turn to you. So James Goggin came in. He's an amazing graphic designer who also has a background actually in, in um, uh, working with sound texts because he worked on the Wire magazine, mm -hmm. right, design, um, among other many, many amazing projects. But James right away, he, you'd already heard the podcast yeah. when I talked to you about this. We yeah. ran into each other actually yeah. at a book fair. Exactly a year ago because we just had the next iteration of the... Oh, amazing how fast we did turn yeah, it around. Yeah, Teacher Rhode Island School of Design, <laughs> yeah. RISD Art Book Fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly a year James ago. James started weekend. working on it right. this time last year. No. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I, I came down and I was at the book fair and we ran into each other. We knew each other from other contexts. Mm -hmm. And uh, you said that you'd heard the podcast with your daughters, I think you said, in yeah, the car. Yeah, we were driving to the beach. I mean, it, you reminded me, the podcast came out August 4th. 2017. Mm -hmm. And they they know Galaxy 500 and mm -hmm. they say, you know, this, and they, they, we like listening to podcasts. Driving down to the beach from Providence, you know, to the coast. And this is perfect. Let's listen to it on the way down. And they were really into it. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so I said to James, I was like, oh, speaking of the podcast, I want to turn it into a book. Mm. And he says, you mean like ways of seeing? <laughs> so I called so I called Matt and I was like Matt I think I have a can we go out of house for this because I think I found the person to do this and um, Matt made it happen um, so James inherited this project um, and why don't you talk a little bit about your process because it's um, I remember saying to you that now you know the script again was done the audio mm. was done but you were going to have to do everything that the sound had done for the text. Yeah, which in was audio. hugely daunting task because, I mean, I think I'd remarked immediately to you instinctively, you know, I, I'd looked up this, you know, the sound design was fantastic. So I immediately wanted to look up Radiotopia's website, who did the, you know, who did this, who worked on it. And so the daunting task was, you know, how do I even begin to match the atmosphere that was conjured? in the podcast in and i think you spoke really eloquently about this um ian the all the things that sound can do and print does actually have limitations in terms of you know that it's more difficult to layer things and maintain legibility for example right. um just simply plastering images over text i was going to do a lot more of this actually what you do see on the cover mm. of text overlapping but it kind of wound up just being the cover and then we let it play out in other ways but yeah. Yeah, so I was aware there was a big task, but I also kind of wanted to, I'm very interested in not just designing books, but being involved in picture research too. I design a lot of contemporary art books or art history books, and I often find myself being handed images and remembering that there's another image that I can remember of a certain artist, and I'll do some research and propose it back to the publisher saying, what about, you know, I remember this one, what about this one? And sometimes that really annoys publishers. And some, <laughs> sometimes people are game for it. And so I kind of said, well, I'd like to, I mean, uh, you always have to be careful what you wish for, but I said, I'd really like to do the picture research for this as well, like just to kind of do everything, and which was a massive amount of work, yes. as it turned out. There, there are 135 images. Yeah. Um, but it felt crucial. Like that, to me, was part of the role of the, of the design for the book. Um, and naturally, that had to be something that was very closely in dialogue with Damon. It wasn't an idea of going away and secretly working on the book and then coming back with just some presentations. But... We had several meetings working together, working sessions, and there was constant back and forth with emails. Um, I, I would spend a week sometimes just struggling to represent an image of something. Mm. I think going back to you were talking about um, the recording with your mum mm -hmm. and also talking about um, being on the phone, analog sounds, and mm. there, there's such a poignant moment talking about how with digital communication with cell phones, we no longer hear the other person breathing on the line because when you're not talking, it cuts off. Um, and so how do you represent, you know, this, the presence of someone else on the other end? And there's kind of an ennui that you think about of like, you know, someone sighing almost, you can't really hear that so much. And so I immediately, I mean, this is just one example. How do you illustrate that? I was struggling for weeks 
And then I remember just, you know, you get a lot of size in Peanuts comics. <laughs> and I just kind of thought that sort of, <laughs> that's, how, that's, that's how you could do that. That sort of gets stuck again in what I think Ian was doing. And so around the gamut in terms of trying to, you know, there are a lot of very obvious sort of expository illustrations that just show the part of New York we're talking about, mm-hmm. things like that. But I was interested in room for these kinds of moments where you could find a more unexpected pop culture reference. Peanuts showed up twice, actually, yeah. <laughs> in this book. Um, or here, but where it was such a joy. It was a real challenge, um, but really gratifying to kind of... In this, in this same episode right here where we have this lost connection on the wire and you took the liberty and the space not to use an illustration, but just to use typography and the layout on the page mm. to give us a sense of what is going on mm-hmm. of gaps yeah. in communication and how it works uh, and off mic. And there, there are liberties like that that are very, very expressive. And to me also, you were very, um, you chose carefully. It's, it doesn't, you don't go, it doesn't happen again and again and again. Yeah. It's uh, a very, it's a common trope with graphic designers. They like to kind of go overboard with typography and, if someone's shouting, you know, let's make the type bigger because it's shouting, get it, you know, and it sort of hits the reader over the head too much, I think, mm-hmm. too heavy-handed. So, so, so it's just... the same problem in sound design. It's right, right. yeah. 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 But, but when you mention Barry White, you do have to make it extra bold. Right, <laughs> so. right, right, right. <laughs> so, so here's... This is, this is uh, from a, an interview with Roman Mars, which we recorded in the room back there, uh, but he was on the phone. And that's made a point of in the in the in the in the uh, subject matter in the content, and uh, James just puts this one little flash of boldface in the middle there, where Roman Mars leans into the mic, imitating his voice like Barry White. This is ninety-one point seven, like that. <laughs> and again, it's very it's very um, it's parsimonious. You know, you, you use these, but but I think because you careful with them, each one really counts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same thing that happen can happen in sound design. You can shut off from an effect that's used too much. Or, you know, bands do this all the time. They find one reverb pedal they love and then it's like everything's you know drenched in it. You gotta like save it for the for the for the right moment. It's very, very expressive. So James, you you did all kinds of things with both the with the image research, which is fantastic. So but the other thing we were also thinking about the format of the book mm-hmm. and you chose to put it in two color. Again, it's rather reserved in a way, but it's also rather lavish because we have color throughout the book. Yeah. But it's not a full color book. Yeah. But maybe you want to talk because again, Matt was mentioning all these models that we were sort of looking at. What were you? Yeah, you have. I mean, Buckminster Fuller. I seem to be a verb, for example. I think mm-hmm. is black and green. Mm-hmm. And this actually was black and green at one point. It was black and orange for a while. Like oh. we kept trying to, we kept debating about which. Yeah, what's blue? the second color? What what feels right? Mm-hmm. Um, magenta was one of them. Magenta, yeah, yeah we tried a few. Like I, I wanted to ultimately a kind of process color, you know, in printing you print cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. Those are kind of, if you want a solid color, that's already mm-hmm. built into the presses in a way. So um, part of it was we were c- pulling images from so many different sources. There was a low resolution, you know, aspect to them as well. And that, so I actually applied a kind of coarse half tone to everything. So there was a practical level, one color, half-toned, so at least images from the web could look as sharp as some of the high-quality photographs that we, you know, paid royalties for. There's a certain level where, you you know, if you're going to have a picture of the Beatles in a book, you're going to have to reach for your checkbook. Right, yes, which which I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it kind of made sense to kind of, because there were such disparate sources, there Mm -hmm. were, we we have corporate logos, we have screen grabs from iOS. Mm -hmm. We have, you know, um, you know what, these kinds of scientific diagrams. Yeah, I love this page, which where we have a, uh, you know, we're talking about kind of the world of algorithms, and and James found this remarkable scientific illustration of the early formulation of that concept. Yes, really. mm-hmm. computer scientist Donald Knut is a fa- is right. kind of a hero of mine. He's, he did type design as well. Right, so. he was sort of really and sort of self taught type design, and made yeah. his crazy books, yeah. right? And um, and then we have the the discursive text, my text, alongside that. James has set in a different, you know, different column width, so it sort of resembles physically the, the uh, the algorithmic uh, flowchart to its left, and allowing the spacing and using again a very spare use of italic and of unusual spacing. Again, it's sort of calling your attention to these details, very very similar to what the audio did. So it's it's remarkable to me. I mean, I feel that you did, 
you know, you succeeded in making the text live on the page. And again, this is this um, it really a tremendous challenge. I mean, that both of you did. I mean, one you did in audio, and then you did on the page again. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has two different lives. And that, I think, is uh, here we see the um, summary at the end where you can, if you go and listen to this, this is where Ian is calling up the different palettes of sound from each episode. And James, to mirror that, pulled an image that you've seen earlier in the book. It's the only repetition of any image mm-hmm. in the book. And something else we could maybe briefly mention, which mm-hmm. really, just only hearing this for the first time from Ian, how you had certain audio motifs that were specific to each episode. I mean, I also have, you know, traditionally in typography, I, you have section breaks. They're often, you know, an asterism, three mm-hmm. asterisks, um, or a dinkus, the three asterisks in a row. And I, a lot of my book designs, I like playing with what, what is the section break? How can it be thematic or a little joke mm-hmm. or a nod? And so we had, you know, here you can see in the center here, um, space. Uh, well, wait, time, if we go back one time. Yeah. Some of them are obvious. Oh, here we are, a little yeah. clock time for time. Time was the clock. Huh. Um, and then we had space for each episode. We have love. love. Yeah. Money. We have money, which is it's a, a price, tag price tag. And power. Power. Is a, a little lightning bolt. And then finally, signal, signal and noise. Signal and noise with the. So, some obvious, some slightly less obvious. Yeah. And again, so the, those are in each episode, those are used as the, the dingbats separating the, the paragraph mm-hmm. sections or the larger breaks. Um, but then at the very end, the, James again calling them so up. This reuni- just as reunification could really echo exactly right. what Ian yeah. was doing right. in terms of audio. Yeah. yeah, and it is a remarkable experience, I think, for me, even, even though it was my own words, to see the words twice interpreted and differently. Mm-hmm. And so I even even though I wrote the text mm-hmm. and spoke it, you know, aloud, I see different things in it mm-hmm. um, from these two versions. And that's what Emily Thompson writes about in her interlude, mm-hmm. very, very eloquently. Yeah. Uh, about the different information that we take from different media. Mm-hmm. And that's the basic thing. And then of course, to get step one more back from it, the whole project is discussing the shift from analog to digital mm-hmm. and then back again, because it's not only one way. We continually reinterpret going back to, just to put it back through speakers and hear one another, you're going to go back to an analog technology. Uh, so there's a there's a constant shuffling of this information, I think, translation, transformation, reinterpretation, reframing, and recontextualizing. And also a major point that I had in the, in the text is about the loss of context that we sometimes allow in digital media that I feel is really, if I get to be a little bit preachy, it's when I'm talking about that, a little bit of a Jeremiah about the loss of context. And that's kind of my warning, you know, don't let go of the context. So here we have this, you know, text literally just recontextualized. Uh, and contextualized by each of the four of you very, very much. Uh, not mine alone. This is very much a collaborative work, like a work of music, a very familiar process for me, um, to have that kind of back and forth. And James, our process was very, very similar to my process with Ian, mm-hmm. uh, where we were going um, you know, second by second through the, through the finished versions. James went page by page and spread by spread. Mm. Uh, the spreads are very, very carefully arranged as well. So I think we'll probably uh, wind up, but I wanted to just show you this is another, uh, some non-podcast, non-audio material that's added at the end. Ian has given us a podcasting glossary so that it's a key to uh, the sound instructions that are kept in the script. And again, I thought this might be very useful for people um, thinking about what they're hearing and how podcasts are made and... and uh, you know, you, there's some places you can, if you start to Google, you can find on the web, but really nothing where you can concisely look at this kind of vocabulary that's being used. Uh, so that's added in. And then this wonderful set of image credits. I love how this is set so dense um, and really represents an intense amount of labor and negotiation with many, many, many parties. <laughs> and now, and here we are. This is where we are right now. This is the credits. So I took the credits from the podcast, the audio credits. Ways of Hearing the Podcast is a production of Showcase from Radiotopia and PRX, and that all, everybody's participation. And then Ways of Hearing the Book is a production of MIT Press, and everybody's participation who worked on it there in the same way. It's an absolutely parallel mm. construction, because I think it is a, uh, a parallel idea. And the back cover says, the last my last words in the podcast, which are, this has been Ways of Hearing. Thank you for listening. And again, thank you 
Matt for allowing that to happen and getting it to happen, to put the final bit of the text on the physical back cover. Thank you, James, for being such an amazing interpreter of this and of the book object and making this something just came out so perfectly. And we haven't even talked about the cold glue binding, but I, we won't go into that. But another thing that Matt made happen that was unbelievable, there's only one binder left in the... In, in continental Europe and none in North America, right? It means you can open the book. You can open the book flat, as yeah. you should be able to. I need to get my hands on this thing. Yeah, it's really... <laughs> Let's just leave it Thank there. you, Julie. Thank so, you, Julie, for making this script. You really co-wrote this with me in so many ways and taught me to write it. And thank you, Ian, for making this live in sound and bringing this to life. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, MIT Press, for arranging this and the Podcast Garage for recording it. Yeah, I mean, Damon. Yes. One thing, this is really special. Like, I just have to interject and say, I traffic a lot in the world of podcasting, and to see something, the word beshert comes to mind, things happen <laughs> as they should. I mean, you heard all of us talk about Whoa, personal coincidence, investment, mm. uh, heart, brain, like all of this, like it's not common. It's really special. So thank you. I think podcasts live because of the generosity of the people who bring them to life. And a lot of this, you've cast a lot of lights on us, but I want to I want to throw it back to you because like this yeah. is really your heart and your project and you brought, you know, it's because of you. So mm. Yes, yeah. a miracle, sort of, but like really, thank you. I want to thank you for approaching and bringing thank it to Thank you, us. Julie. That's really kind. Thank you very much. Yeah, so thank, thank yeah. you. That's, that's really sweet. Of course, it's really my mom, really. Good. <laughs> Her too, yeah. Gave it the spark. Of course. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here tonight. <laughs>